to the playoffs edition of the AUDL Roundup. One weekend of playoff action is in the books. We have a divisional champion, and we're going to go through every game we watch this weekend and preview next weekend's games. And this is all that's really worth talking about this week. This is some exciting stuff. Nathan, you were just all over Frisbee this weekend watching every single game. I was able to watch almost all of them, and there were some good games. More upsets than I thought were going to happen. Um, I did not do too great in my picks. I went against my hometown boys, the Atlanta Hustle, and I they made me pay for it. So why don't we start off with that one? What did you see from the Southeast uh, kind of wild card final, and do you think these guys are going to have a chance against Dallas? Well, the the second part of that question is a whole other issue entirely. Uh, I did watch the Raleigh-Atlanta game, and I really thought it was the game of the weekend, uh, to be honest with you. Um, Atlanta went into Raleigh, and they traded for a long time. You know, occasionally Atlanta might get a little bit of a lead. Raleigh would climb back and take the lead again. Um, I, I thought it was well played by both teams. I didn't think it was like, oh, well, Raleigh had an off day and Atlanta took advantage. You know, I thought Raleigh played well. I thought Atlanta played well. Uh, both offenses did a pretty good job. They were fairly efficient. Um, you know, I mentioned last week uh, Dylan Tunnell has been really big for this team, and he was again on uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, five assists, over 50 completions, just two throwaways, and some just on-point throws and some some clutch catches as well. A couple other players uh, for Atlanta I thought that stood out. Austin Taylor was consistently open under, and I'm not he's not a big guy, so I would think that you know teams would try to force him deep a little bit more. But he was constantly getting the disc. It seemed like in high stall situations on undercuts even. But I, I think Atlanta they, they deserve to win. I, you know they just played a little bit better in the fourth quarter. Once they got that lead, uh, Raleigh tried to you know act quickly to catch back up, but they, there wasn't enough clock left, and Atlanta just had a clutch possession to take a two-point lead. They got the disc with, I think, a minute 40 left. They took a minute 20 off the clock before they scored. When you're up by two with 20 seconds left, the game's pretty much over, so that sealed it. That was impressive. I, that, I thought that was kind of a turning point for me, too, is when they were able to just stay patient and hold on to it. With all of the kind of youngsters, I mean, they're not – incredibly young like some of these other players in the league are but there were big difference makers in you know austin taylor like you mentioned elliot erickson sam little guys who are just starting to kind of fully break onto the scene they've got some high level experience already but they're just starting to get on there every time i've watched the hustle play well it's because dylan tonell is playing well I, I, he is kind of they have a lot of pieces but when he has a good stat line, it's because they won the game or vice versa. I guess you can say that. So he was, you're right. He was incredibly good and he will need to be incredibly good again. If they want to have another chance at this, I, I was really impressed by the young guys on hustle and some of those mid season additions they've had have meshed better than I expected. Um, you know, it didn't seem kind of like, they were individual pieces anymore. They worked really well together as a team, and I wrote it off a little bit. So as impressive as they were, oof, their upcoming game against Dallas is going to be rough, and we'll talk about that in the, uh, in the next segment. But I want to get to another uh, playoff game this weekend, New York visiting D.C., and this game was supposed to be closer than it was. It still ended as only a four-point game, but these teams have been really tied up until this point. What did you see from this game? Well, it was tight for a while. D.C. Uh, pulled away, and they, New York was just never able to really close the gap again. 
But I, I think it's just a, a four-point win is not a bad win for D.C., even at home against New York. Um, I, I think it just goes to show how far the Brees have progressed over the course of the season. You know, each one-point win against New York has been thrilling in its own way. But on uh, Saturday, you saw a Brees team that, you know, knew what its rotations were. I think players were knew their role and they were comfortable in their role. Uh, I, you know, I think Markham Schaffner had a great game. Um, he and Bob Lou have been playing on the O-line together while Alan Kolick and Brett Mazzucca have shifted to the D-line, joining Nikki Spiva over there. And at first I was kind of skeptical because I thought, like, in a lot of ways, Nikki, Brett, and Alan Kolick are their three best handlers. You're playing them all on the D-line. But I think it's worked really well. Um, and, I, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but the, I think they're a real threat to take uh, Toronto down. Well, yeah, they they moved some guys over the D-line, but Bob Lou did not miss a pass. He had a 100% completion rate. And it's for D.C., it's just the big guys being better than your other big guys. Alan Kolick led the team in points played. Schaffner led in assists. Goose led in goals. There's no real surprises here. I mean, their best players can just be better than the rest of your team. And it does help to have some offensive pieces that have really stepped up so that they can move guys like Matsuka over to the D-line because he's a real threat to get those break chances early. And that's really what happened here. I mean, it just... New York did not find themselves in a good situation late in the game to really try and put it on. And I was saying last week, that's what was going to need to happen. It was DC was going to have to look up and realize they're only tied, you know, with five minutes left and this is bad, but DC took control and they didn't really let it go. I mean, I think the scoreline might be a little closer than the game suggests from what I saw. I think DC really was in control this whole time. And yeah, we'll talk later about their matchup against Toronto. But let's move to a different division, Pittsburgh and Minnesota, and, you know, the second closest game, or sorry, tied with Raleigh and Atlanta for the closest game this weekend. This one I wasn't super confident on last week, but, I, I mean, Pittsburgh had control of it near the end. What did you see from this one? Well, I think it was a really, uh, it was a winnable game for the windchill, and, you know, it was unfortunate. I think they had some roster problems going into it because uh, Connor Klein, Liam Shramko, and Michael Jordan, uh, not number, tw- well, he does wear number 23, not the former Chicago Bull, Michael Jordan. They were all at the <laughs> game on the sideline. Um, and, you know, like uh, Lou Abramowski, their coach, was playing, and it was kind of alluded to in the halftime interview. Lou said something like, well, I wish I didn't have to play. So you could tell that there have been some roster difficulties there. And it did make you think, like, given that Pittsburgh didn't play that great, and it's not like the Winchell played their best game either. Some of those guys may have been able to make the difference. Uh, I think Pittsburgh had some uh, – what impressed me most with, from them this game wasn't their offense. And usually what impresses me most about Pittsburgh, whether it's the Thunderbirds, whether it's college, whether it's temper, is always their offense. This game, uh, their defense was pretty good. Uh, obviously, Anson Reppermond had five Ds in this game. They also, I think, made the really uh, strategic decision to, in conscious effort, to force Ben Yacht under. Um, and that was mildly effective, I guess. Um, he had seven assists, uh, so he still did a lot of damage in that game, I felt. But neither team played very cleanly. Um, like we said last week, is like if Alex Thorne has a really good game, it's going to be really tough to beat Pittsburgh. Well, he had five assists, 55 completions, and one throwaway. I think that qualifies as a really good game. Um, but it doesn't, and you know, uh, it doesn't bode well for their game against Madison. Uh, 
Minnesota didn't play their best game. They were missing some people. Yeah, Pittsburgh was missing some people too, but they, they didn't play their best game. And they're going to need to play their absolute best if they want to win in Bree Stevens. It, I just I didn't come away very impressed with the Pittsburgh offense. This was ugly. It was a really ugly game, and I was, I was surprised just like you are. Um, you know, a win's a win, but it does not give me a lot of confidence in calling that upset, like you said. I, I think Madison is, is looking at this last game and knowing that they have, you know, a good advantage going into this one. And, yeah, like you said about Ben Yacht, you're taking the lesser of two evils there. I mean, I, I just think Pittsburgh kind of accepted the fact that, yeah, he might throw some assists, and he threw a lot of them, probably more than they wanted to, but it's better than him just being bigger than everyone else and getting wide open in the end zone, you know, at least force him to make a play to somebody else on the team. And they were trying to flex their depth. Um, not super pretty, but a win's a win. They're going to move on. And now we're looking at this last game uh, that was on Saturday which is Seattle and L.A., and I accidentally – well, not accidentally. I, I can't say that. I picked, I picked L.A. to win uh, last weekend, and that, just from the get-go, did not seem like a very good choice. I mean, Seattle, this whole weekend, looked like the best team that I've seen all year. What did you see from the Seattle-L.A. game? Well, the Cascades started off on an 8-1 run. And it was really never a game after that. You know, L.A., it it was 17-5 at halftime. L.A. ended up closing the margin. They only lost by eight. But this this game was never in doubt. The Cascades looked, I I thought they looked great on Saturday. Playing against an L.A. team that isn't bad. You know, the the Aviators earned their playoff spot for sure. Um, I thought uh, one of the things that impressed me most, especially on Saturday going against the Aviators, was the Seattle, it was team defense it was really team defense uh if you just their their players were very smart about when to play under when to see they had help deep if they needed it and la just struggled so much just to get open on a simple undercut or or a huck at, or on the break side it, you know the seattle defenders were just very aware it was like their heads could go 360 degrees about where their whole team was and that that made life really difficult for Los Angeles. Um, we talk a lot about star players because they're the players that make the most impact. Um, and the biggest star for uh, L.A. is Mark L. Bogan. And, you know, he really struggled on Saturday. I think he had one assist and one goal with two drops and five throwaways uh, and something like 25 completions. You know, that's when, when your best player is only playing that well because Seattle really keyed in on him, and they had a bunch of defenders they could rotate onto him. So they were constantly fresh with great matchups on him. It's a, it's a tough spot to be in if you're L.A., but what really impressed me was that second quarter from Seattle. Just Their defense was just relentless. It never stopped, and it was just so smart. And that's when I, I think they went on. I, they just took over in that first quarter. Um, it was it was truly a sight to see. You know, I watched both of Seattle's games this weekend, and although they weren't very exciting, um, this isn't a great technical way to put it, but the Seattle defense just makes you look confused and makes you look like you've never played offense before. Like some of these L.A. guys like just kind of thought space would be there, and then they would go there, space isn't there anymore. And it's just they make you look like this is a whole new thing you're having to do and that they've been doing this for years. And on offense, the Seattle system was 
fluid, and it looked exactly like what we've seen for years from Sakai. And, I mean, it just it worked really well for them. They had kind of long strings of possessions, and then they find Donnie Clark or Zane Rankin was unbelievably good and a guy that doesn't get a lot of credit on that team. But for one of the younger guys on that team and in that system, he was very good. And it was, it was contributions from guys like that that really made it tough. You're not going to find a good chink in the armor when they were playing this well all weekend. Uh, the main questions we had about Seattle going into the weekend were about who would show up and how much they would care. You know, we, we thought they would care given that it's a playoff game, but we kind of questioned their motivation because they're on the road. Uh, they have five losses on the year, same record as L.A. L.A. Has, hasn't really played at in a game this meaningful, whether it's club or pro, in, in a while. I mean, when was the last time the L.A. men's elite group played in a game that meaningful? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm thinking of maybe, like, besides the L.A. guys that travel for club, I mean, maybe, like, is Boost Mobile near there? I'm trying no, to think of stuff. I, I mean, I guess happening. the closest would be Condors, but Condors yeah. haven't been a quarterfinals team in a while. Um, right. So the – and obviously, all, I mean, yes, they missed some players on Saturday. Like Matt Rader wasn't there. You know, I, I think if Tim Garrett showed up for Seattle, that'd be neat. Um, but they were there in full force, and they really cared, and they acted like it was a win they needed to have, and they took care of business right from the start. As far as that Seattle-San Francisco game, I think there are, there are a few things I noticed. Uh, we thought that San Francisco, we both picked San Francisco to win that game, and we largely did it because Seattle would be coming off of a game the day before. You know, They're on the second day of a back-to-back, and San Francisco isn't. And it just seemed like that would probably be too much to overcome, given that these we viewed them as relatively evenly matched talent-wise. Would you say that's fair? I actually thought both of us had a, a pretty clear consensus that San Francisco was going to take it pretty easily. So I think I, it, we probably thought if we had to pick San Francisco, probably had a little bit better of talent, and that Seattle coming off you know, the game before weren't going to play as well. And, oh, my gosh, we were wrong. That, that's uh, yeah, that's clearly true. Um, the first quarter of that Seattle San Francisco game, the game was tied three three. Because let, let's be honest, both teams were playing poorly at the beginning. There were sloppy looks from both sides. Um, you know, after the first quarter, they were both three for thirteen in their conversion versus opportunities. Um, you know, the San Francisco O line was one for eight. Um, you know, they're both playing kind of sloppy. And you'd expect that from Seattle, right? Because they just played the day before, 54-point game. Now, I think it is kind of an underrated factor that they played, the game was over at halftime, basically, against L.A. And while you still play the whole 48 minutes, I don't think it does quite the same level to your legs that would if that were like a three-point game or a two-point game. So Well, I think- it's, I mean, they don't have an unlimited roster. I mean, there's still guys that have to come on and play that haven't played in the last four four points. So, I mean, the For best sure. seven guys can't leave and go get dinner. I mean, they're still having to do – they're having to get offensive holds. But, yes, to your point, it is easier, but it's not, you know, a complete break. Yeah, and I, I think the uh, – when Seattle started to run away with it against San Francisco was in the second quarter. What I saw happening was – Seattle made some nice plays on defense. You know, um, a few that stood out in particular. Um, I, I remember Donyan Chen had one really great uh, D. 
you know, Matt Rader had a nice Dion Huck that was to Greg Cohen. Um, in the first quarter, Will Chen hand-blocked Robbie Cahill. It was, like, one of the first things that happened in the game. Um, and I think I mean, it's bizarre to think that they may have kind of put San Francisco, even though it was tied after the first quarter, in a mental state where they just weren't confident because we're talking about San Francisco ultimate here. And uh, I mean, confidence and the, the play to back up that confidence is something I think we both think and believe that they absolutely have, but that it seemed like that's what happened because the flamethrowers started forcing throws. They put up a bunch of floaty hucks and they, they just didn't look, they didn't look good. And I think one underrated factor here. If talent can be underrated, which is uh, not common, but I mean, would you really take the flamethrowers roster over the Cascades roster? Just like looking at the rosters, if they're both there, if they're both playing to their full potential, are you really going to do that? No, no. I, I mean, the Seattle roster on paper to me has looked relatively even with San Francisco, but this is the first time that they've actually played like that. Uh, this is the first weekend. I mean, discounting the game before this one. I mean, San Francisco did not look good. Like, there's just Seattle was good, and um, you know they had control of the game before halftime. But San Francisco looked like they could have lost to LA or several other teams. I mean, they just did not look like they had it together. Uh, I mean, their downfield guys were behind the disc, and their handlers were sitting in the deep side hammer space and it just it was like i was saying with seattle playing la they just kind of made them look like an offensive system was foreign and that they had learned it an hour before the game started i don't know what it was it just san francisco did not look like they had a plan it looked like the communication was lacking um i mean there are still great players making great individual plays but that's not enough to beat a team like this you can't just be individually better than the other team there was not a whole lot of great you know use of space uh communication just positioning of players and where their strengths are and seattle had their matchups they wanted i mean donnie clark again was extremely good and zane rankin i'm going to mention it again he was also very good in this game so uh, seattle just seemed more prepared yeah i think that if you look at uh the handler sets uh Danny Karlinski and Simon Montague clearly outplayed Robbie Cahill and Eli Kearns. It wasn't even close. Um, you know, Simon only had two assists, but those can be kind of deceiving stats because, uh, you know, he also had some hooks that went for 40 or 50 yards, and then they were dished for easy goals right after that. Um, and he was the go-to guy, and they did not really have, like, an answer. Like, when he wanted to go get the disc to reset a count, there wasn't a whole lot san francisco could do about it so yeah he didn't have an outrageous stat line like you said but he was a excellent facilitator uh he was all over the place and i didn't really think that there were times where simon or uh danny karlinski forced throws and it seemed like robbie cahill and eli kearns were forcing throws and i mean it's reflected in their statistics and their throwaways but i also think that uh matt rader had a had a good game um nick stewart is a is a huge addition. I mean, he played one game in the regular season. This is just like classic Seattle AUDL. Like, oh, he played one game and now he fits in seamlessly. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's it's good that they're able to do that. It's just kind of ridiculous, right? And for some reason, the uh, flamethrowers kept throwing it to Jesse Bolton. Like, Jesse Bolton had one nice D. 
that was really impressive. And he ended up with four because I think just two or three times they just straight up threw it to Jesse Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how how that happened. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that too. It was just it, part of that weird kind of confusing flow from San Francisco that I wasn't used to seeing. And to go back to your earlier point, if the only Seattle I had watched all year are the games which Nick Stewart has played in, he might be on my all AUDL line. Like he'd be in that conversation. He's just so good. And it makes me kind of frustrated that he's only played in, you know, three games this whole year. But I'm, um, you know, at least hopefully we'll get him for championship weekend and that will be fun to watch. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Next up, we're going to talk about uh, this week's upcoming game. So stick around. This podcast is brought to you by Tyga Ultimate, a new standard in ultimate apparel where each jersey is made uniquely for you. Use code SUMMERTIMESCUBER to get a 10% discount on your next team order for college, club, or Wildwood. So this upcoming weekend, we've got the three remaining divisional championship games. Obviously, Seattle sealed up their one of their spots in championship weekend. They will be there. The other six teams left to decide it. Let's start with Pittsburgh and Madison. Pittsburgh traveling to the undefeated Radicals. And both of us said earlier on in the show, Pittsburgh did not look very clean. Um, you know, they, they've got a talented roster, but I still have not seen them fully put a game together that has convinced me that they even stand a chance in this next matchup. So earlier this season when Madison visited Pittsburgh, uh, the Thunderbirds lost by four in a game that Madison kind of was in control the whole time. They were up 22-15 before Pittsburgh rattled off a couple of breaks to, you know, kind of, I don't want to say it was meaningless, but the fact that they closed it to four when it had been, you know, a seven-goal margin, six-goal margin for a while isn't that meaningful to me. And when Pittsburgh came to Madison earlier in the year, they lost by seven. And in a game that they would occasionally close it to, like, two-goal margin in the third quarter or something like that, and it ended up being 23-16. The Thunderbirds, and we've talked about this before, uh, theoretically, they're really good, right? I mean, theoretically, (laughs) the Thunderbirds could be great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it doesn't really matter, um, in my opinion. Uh, you've, especially given how bad their offense looked on Saturday, and that's their strength. Their strength is their offense. Um, and you could say, oh, well, yeah, the, ha- only, the only chance they have really is if they barely give Madison any break chances, and then they somehow manage to trade until the fourth quarter, and then, you know, things are up in the air from there. But yeah, to your point, one of the only chances they have is not giving up easy D's for Madison, who on their own is going to force D's. So now you're going to give them even more by just not playing as clean as you're supposed to. And from what I've heard of interviews of Pittsburgh people or uh, just anecdotally is that, well, Pittsburgh has some confidence because last year uh, they beat Madison once during the regular season. And then they went to Madison. And after beating Chicago later that day, they played the Radicals, that same day. This isn't a back-to-back. This is a doubleheader. And after falling behind a little bit initially, they only ended up losing by three. 
Um, and yeah, that's nice. That was last year. Uh, the Thunderbirds were thirteen. What they were twelve and two during the regular season. This year they are ten and four. Um, I don't think they're as strong this year. I don't think they're as cohesive. They haven't had the same kind of lineup turn up week to week, the same the way that they did last year. And a lot of the reason that Madison, uh, that Pittsburgh played Madison so well last year, you know, better than anybody else in the Midwest at least, was that they played really well against the Madison zone. They they carved up that zone. Um, and Madison hasn't been throwing zone against Pittsburgh this year because they realized it. They adjusted. They're playing man defense. And guess what? Madison's man defense is pretty good. I, I, yeah. I mean, what, what can you do if you're Pittsburgh? I mean, I mean, zone is not the only thing that Madison can do. It's, you know, I, I think when a lot of people hear about it, it, they might think that the Madison D-line is a one-trick pony, but their man is fiery and aggressive, and it's not going to be easy. And, yeah, there might be a bunch of the same players as there was in that game last year, but this is not the same. Like you said, they have not had a cohesive offensive unit going for – five or six weeks in a row like they may have last last year and madison to the contrary has done that they've had a consistent roster this year and they have played really lights out in every single one of their uh regular season games so it you know i don't want to totally rule it out because it hasn't happened yet but there has been no signs of any game that madison has played that they're weak enough to be this vulnerable and there's been no sign from any of the games that Pittsburgh has played to let me know that they're strong enough to really pull this kind of win off. Listen, if Pittsburgh had kind of taken care of business against a less than full strength windchill team and just their O-line dominated and their defense played at least as it good at least as well as it did on Saturday, you know, maybe you can talk to yourself about, you know, well they've figured it out, but the simple facts are um in my opinion, Pittsburgh is worse than they were last year. Um, they're, they're just not as strong. And Madison is better than they were last year. Uh, the Radicals, I, I think they've improved. I think they've recognized some weaknesses. They, they've dealt with them. They've added a couple players here or there, not a lot. They've just, and despite the fact that, you know, some players have missed some games, they've looked better. And I think they're more ready for the playoffs than they had been before. And do I see Pittsburgh coming into Bree Stevens Field when the final four is going to be at Bree Stevens Field, the Radicals know that. I, and this is going to be their first game in a while. I don't see them, you know, taking Pittsburgh lightly. But I think there's a reason they're the clear favorite of all the games this weekend. In some ways, I'm most confident in Madison. Yeah, I. Well, you're more confident in Madison than you are in Dallas. It's I, a good it's, transition to getting into the rough next game here. I'm I'm pretty confident in both. <laughs> Let me just put it okay, that way. Yeah, like a, it's. Yeah. Above 90%, above any of my picks from last weekend, I like Madison to beat Pittsburgh and uh, Dallas to beat Atlanta. Yeah, so let's talk about that game. Atlanta, obviously impressive in their win over Raleigh, but, oh my gosh. We say the same things every time we preview a game that the Roughnecks are in, and I feel like we're just a broken record at this point, but they haven't given us anything to talk about. I mean, they've just been really good. So it's it's boring, and I just have this feeling 
and I'm sure everybody else does too, that they're just going to kind of take care of business. And you can't discount the fact that this is the longest trip that anybody's going to make this weekend. I mean, Atlanta to Dallas is not an easy road. I think it's 11 hours. I've made that trip before and it is, it's not fun. Um, so, uh, you know, that on top of just the other team being the best team, the AEDL has seen most likely, it, you know, the odds are not in the favor of the hustle. Look, if Dallas were missing Jimmy Mickle, Chris Mazur, Dylan Freechild, Kirk Gibson, Cassie Rasmian, and Bo Kittredge, I would still probably pick Dallas to win this game. I'm It'd be closer, sure. but I probably would too. Yeah. Well, guess what? Those six guys I just named, they didn't play against Atlanta this year. They missed both games against Atlanta. And those are obviously both games that the Roughnecks won. And they won by 10. When they were uh, when the hustle came to Dallas earlier this year, so I I have a tough time. I listen. I'm happy for the hustle. I think they played great against um, they played great against the uh, Flyers, but to to say that they could take down Dallas in Dallas, uh, I they're gonna need some sort of miracle. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is like when you're watching March Madness and, you know, not that Middle Tennessee State is is the equivalent of the hustle, but you, you watch the Cinderella story and then you'd be like, okay, clock has struck midnight. You know, you're playing UNC or Villanova and, and it's time to go home now. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's tough. Uh, I'm happy for the hustle too. And they're on the up and up. They've got young players. And if they can get those guys to stick around, they'll be really good in the years to come. But this is not the year to beat a team like this. It's just, it's not going to happen. Um, I, I mean, and I'm trying to think if, like, you know, if a hurricane comes in or the hustle better in the rain and went. No, no, that's just, no, that's there, not it. There are some things I like about Atlanta theoretically in this matchup. You know, I think Atlanta's speed is their main asset um, in a lot of ways. Guys like Austin Taylor and Matt Smith. So unlike Jacksonville or Austin, they're not going to try to put up. Uh, sky opportunities to their athletes a bunch because that's not their strength and that's something Dallas can do. But Dallas manages to both play highly entertaining, uh, highlight-friendly ultimate that's extremely efficient at the same time. There's a reason for that. Uh, yeah. I, it's just, what can you say? I, it's tough to see the, any sort of outcome in which the hustle finished within, you know, like three points of Dallas in this game. I'm going to enjoy watching it, though. I mean, I like watching the hustle play, and I like watching Dallas play. So I, I will enjoy watching it. But, no, I'm not getting my wallet anywhere close to picking the upset on this one. The last one we've got, um, I don't think either of us are nearly as confident in, in making our pick as we are with these first two matchups. D.C. traveling to Toronto for the East Division final. This got a lot closer for me in my mind after watching D.C. take down New York this weekend. This is, I think, the closest you get to a 50-50 shot. Um, you know, I I would not be confident picking Toronto or D.C. in this game. Uh, Toronto won two of the three games during the year, but D.C. won the uh, third game by, I think it was five points. Um, and they looked, that you know, that's when they looked their best. And we've been saying that D.C.'s been getting progressively better as the season goes on. So I think they're well-equipped to play Toronto. Um, and, you know, yeah, Toronto's going to be playing at home. 
earlier this year when DC went to Toronto, and I think back in April, they only lost by one in Toronto. So it's it's not like there's some sort of huge um, home field advantage. Um, yeah, if I were Toronto, I'd rather be playing at home than on the road. But I I don't think you can discount a team that's as good as DC just because they're playing on the road. Right. Uh, DC's got plenty of pieces to make this one work, uh, but their top four or five guys are all going to have to play incredibly well. Um, I like the kind of personnel changes they've made, putting Matsuka on a different spot and keeping Bablu in that offense. And he's going to need another hundred percent game like he had in New York to give them a shot, but it's not out of the question. I mean, we know how good these top four or five guys can be. And if they're all, you know, close to their best on the same night, then this game is a toss-up for me. Toronto does have a deep roster, um, but, you know, this one's tough to call. Uh, I want to get your prediction on this one. We both picked Madison. We both picked Dallas, obviously. This one's a little tougher. So who are you going with here? This is a lot tougher. Um, I think I picked Toronto at the beginning of the year, so I guess I'll stay with them, but that's don't read into that. Um, the, the things I like about D.C. is um, they're – Better at disrupting Toronto's pole plays than a lot of teams are. Uh, Toronto and the AUDL, just like in club, runs great pole plays, and they run them very effectively. So you can't just go playing man defense for the first four throws. That's just uh, every point. That'd be madness. So I, I think they do a good job sagging into the lane early on without overly committing to something like a zone that Toronto's really good at attacking when you try to transition from zone to man. And on offense, I think that D.C. is willing to take some shots, um, and that's, that's okay as long as they, you know, are, you know, they, they don't need to be 100% effective, obviously, but if they're not bad looks and they're there, uh, I think they've been comfortable throwing those hucks against a really good Toronto defense. Like, I'm not trying to, to talk down the Toronto defense. I think they're better this year than they've ever been before. Um, but I think... If DC is going to win this game, they're going to need to win the deep game for sure. Um, and well, also and this sounds contradictory, but uh, maintaining possession. Um, and I'm just saying, don't be afraid to lose yards to maintain possession. That's something they did really well in their last game. And yeah, the, if they turn the disc, just make sure you're throwing it far when you're turning the disc. Yeah, I mean it's it's a tough needle to thread, but. It's definitely there. Uh, this is going to be close. Earlier in the year when we were still doing our picks contest, you know, I tried to pick against you a lot of the time just because I, I got in a hole early and I needed to come back. There's no way I'm, I'm ever coming back. I've stopped asking you just because it's <laughs> embarrassing. I'm trailing by like six or seven or so. So I'm going to be boring, and I'm going to take Toronto on this one too. I think it is close, but Toronto is deep. They are rested and... I think they've just been prepared for this moment, and they're going to take it. It, it. I think D.C. is prepared, too, now. I mean, they weren't in April or May, but now I think they are. Well, that's definitely the most exciting game. For and sure. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting able to watch that. Um, just a couple quick notes. If you haven't been on Ultra World lately, me and Nathan participated in a mock draft that was organized by Patrick Stegemeller of Sin the Fields. It was extremely fun. Go look on there. Um, I saw in a tweet earlier today that my wonderful pick of Chris Strub to Toronto is pleasing him, 
And I'm sure it's because Toronto is just like a super good team and he's not going to have to do a whole lot. And he's going to go like, you know, possibly win a championship, but you know, it's, it's a real fun piece. So go give that a read, tune into all the ultimate this weekend. And we will talk to you on the other side of it. Looking forward to previewing the uh, championship weekend coming up here soon. So tune in next week, but for Nathan Jessen, this is Preston Thompson, and we will see you next time. 